Words are powerful. They cause fear, confusion, and anger, or they can create shared understanding. But when words are delivered by a powerful political leader, their impact can inspire us to great action. And it is to those words that we turn now. In the power of words. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is the meaning of our liberty and our creed, why men and women and children of every race and every faith can join in celebration across this magnificent mall, and why a man whose father less than 60 years ago might not have been served at a local restaurant, can now stand before you to take a most sacred oath. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. Welcome to The Power of Words, a series of programs that follows American history through some of the most memorable and inspiring political speeches that we have ever, ever been exposed to. And we begin our series today with one of the most quoted presidential speeches of all time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's inaugural address, delivered on March 4, 1933. Joining us today to help set the scene and provide context and analysis of the speech is Dr. David Woolner, Associate Professor of History at Marist College and Senior Fellow and Resident Historian at the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Institute in Hyde Park, New York. Dr. Woolner is also an author. His most recent book is FDR's World, War, Peace, and Legacies, co-edited with David Reynolds and Warren Kimball and published by Palgrave. Dr. Wilner holds the 2010 Fulbright Dow Distinguished Research Chair at the Roosevelt Study Center in Middleburg, the Netherlands, and is a past recipient of a Churchill Archives by Fellowship at Churchill College, Cambridge, and an Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Fellowship at the Roosevelt Institute. Dr. Wilner earned his MA and PhD in history from McGill University and ABA summa cum laude in English literature and history from the University of Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Dr. David Woolner. Thank you, Alan. Well, it's wonderful to see you here. So help us at the scene here, Dr. Woolner. It's March of 1933. The country has been in a depression for more than three years already. Statistics from the National Archives website show the unbelievable depths of the depression, a time in history when more than 11,000 of 24,000 banks had failed, wiping out depositors' savings, and, as we know, millions were out of work. So FDR had quite a task at hand to map out his vision for the nation during his inaugural address. So, what's it about? Well, I think it's important to remember when we think of the Great Depression that we're talking about a worldwide economic crisis. We sometimes forget that this crisis, although it was probably the most devastating in the world in the United States, encompassed the entire world and gave rise to anti-democratic systems, fascism in Europe, militarism in Japan. So the world was really teetering on the brink of a very dark age, and Roosevelt inherits power, the presidency, sort of at at the peak of that global crisis, and there was a great deal of fear in the land. Uh, He was getting messages from people like Edward O'Neill, who was the head of the American Farm Federation, that there would be revolution in the countryside within 12 months if something wasn't done to help the farmers. The mayor of Chicago sent a message to the White House, if you don't send relief, send in troops. I mean, the country was teetering on the brink of revolution. 
and there were lots of examples overseas of people turning to alternatives to liberal capitalist democracy. So it was a crisis unlike any the United States had ever seen before or since. Could you just go back to those words you just used, liberal capitalist democracy? Maybe you could help us with defining it and understanding it. Well, I think much of what Roosevelt essentially accomplishes in his tenure in office, and I think it's important to think of his tenures not from 33 to 39, but from 33 to 45, is saving liberal capitalism. Roosevelt, of course, gets a lot of heat these days from right-wing economists, conservative economists who disagree with the policies that were pursued during the New Deal. But essentially, what, what Roosevelt wasn't trying to do was promote socialism. He was trying to save capitalism. And it's very often overlooked and forgotten that that's what it was about. How do we make capitalism work? It wasn't working for the average American. It wasn't working in Europe. The alternatives in Europe were fascism and Nazism. Uh, we didn't want to go down that road. So he had to try to figure out a way to make capitalism provide the kind of standard of living that uh, was required to make people embrace it, to embrace democracy, embrace liberal capitalism. And that was his goal. Now, what's the liberal in liberal capitalism? I think what it means is a faith in government, a faith in progress. You know, uh, Roosevelt is cut of the same cloth as his famous cousin, Teddy, and they are all part of this progressive era that came at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, which ironically, of course, is also the, the so-called Gilded Age when we had this massive concentration of economic wealth at the top end of American society. And there was a sense that it was government's responsibility to try to mitigate the worst excesses of capitalism and to try to provide a better standard of living, as I said, for the average American. So liberals were those that believed that it was possible to make progress by using institutions like government to change the structure of society, to make it more equitable. So he had to watch the attack from the right as well as being thought of as being a danger to people who had socialistic ideas how to run the country. He had two flanks. Absolutely. And this is another thing that we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about comparisons, for example, with today. Some of Roosevelt's harshest critics were in the Democratic Party. The conservative Democrats were some of the harshest critics of the New Deal. There were far more liberal Republicans in, mm. in Congress at that time. So the congressional and party makeup was quite different. And in fact, I think in many ways was much better and much healthier for the country because you didn't have quite such a monolithic point of view on both sides of the aisle, but a much more nuanced uh, approach to the political landscape. So he was dealing with a different political environment. He had many of the same challenges that our current president faces today, of course. Uh, they're not as extreme as, as the ones Roosevelt faced. But I do think one advantage that Roosevelt had is he, he had liberal, liberal Republicans. Fascinating. And didn't have a monolithic Republican Party Exactly. Facing him. Exactly. Remember, the first head of Social Security was a Republican. So what specifically did Roosevelt try to do that would put government in this sort of driver's seat? Well, for Roosevelt, it was far more than an economic question. It was a moral question. And the big issue that Roosevelt, I think, was trying to address is what kind of society do we want to live in? And if you, when we listen to the speech you'll hear that there's a great moral component to this speech. He's really asking about what are the basic values that we want to embrace? What is the role of government? And these are themes that he's going to return to again and again throughout the New Deal. You'll see them actually intensify 
as opposition to the New Deal intensifies in the country. Roosevelt's attack on the forces of what he called privilege, economic royalists, the forces of opposition to the idea of trying to modify capitalism to make it work. His efforts to take on those forces would intensify. And when you look at his speeches from the mid-1930s, they're quite strident. Read even from today's context, they're really quite something. In the speech, there is this reference to kicking the money changers out of the temple. Biblical, of course. What was that about? Well, it's fascinating to look at the 1920s, again, getting back to this idea of setting the scene. Much of the policies that were pursued in the 20s were very similar to what we've seen in the last two or three decades. You have a largely unregulated financial system. You have a largely unregulated banking system. You had easy money. The Federal Reserve lending rates were very low. And you had essentially low wages. So you had an economy that was growing in the 20s, but which was structurally flawed. I mean, it's fascinating to look at this stuff. The American worker was probably the best paid worker in the world, but yet still lived just barely above the poverty line. And trade unionism was on the way out, had kind of been growing, as you know, in the late 19th century, but had been in decline since the turn of the century. So wages were very low, and the American worker did not have the kind of purchasing power to be able to sustain the American economy. So one of the things that starts to happen in the 20s is that borrowed money and speculation with money and easy money and and the financial sector starts to take on a greater role in the economy. And so when the stock market collapses in 29, it exposes those flaws. It was a non-sustainable situation, and eventually it collapsed. And a when sort it, of bubble. A sort of it's bubble. The sort of, David Woolner, the sort of the same bubble that we have experienced currently. Absolutely, and the same kind of frustration and anger. I mean, you had the establishment before Roosevelt gets in office of the Procor Commission to try to look into this. Actually, Pecor was brought in later. The commission was looking like it was going to be a sort of, I don't know, a slap on the wrist type of institution. People were upset about this. When Pecor came in, I believe... Is that Ferdinand Pecor? Yeah. He came in uh, in uh, late 32 and in early 33. He was just a completely different animal. And actually, Roosevelt quietly encouraged him behind the scenes to go for the jugular, and he did. And as you know, the head of Citibank, for example, ended up with a prison term as a consequence of the Procor Commission. So people were angry. They were frustrated. They understood that they had been sold a bill of goods, and they were afraid, and they wanted somebody to do something about it. And the other thing to to remember, which I think is very important, is that Roosevelt was driving blind. We'd never been through this before. I mean, the average American's contact with the federal government in the 1920s was the post office. There was no state. There was no unemployment insurance. There was no Social Security. There was nothing like the institutions that we've become accustomed to, no federal deposit insurance, no regulation of the stock market. I mean, it was a completely different world. And so they they were really starting from scratch, and we'd never been through anything like this before. And again, don't forget, it's not just here, but it's a global issue. You're facing dire threats abroad, growing threats abroad, and domestic unrest at home, and complete collapse of the U.S. economy, complete collapse of the banking system. So who were in the pantheon of anti-heroes at the time? I mean, people like Huey Long. Could you go through some of those for us? Well, yes, Huey Long, uh, a kind of demagogue 
a populist demagogue figure from Louisiana, as you know, governor of Louisiana, then senator, who basically promoted the idea of a guaranteed national income. There were demagogues on the left, people like Francis Townsend, who emerged in the early 30s, who were promoting this idea that the elderly should receive a guaranteed income of so much a month, all of which would have to be spent, a guaranteed national income. Father Coughlin. Father Coughlin on the right, who uh, was initially a supporter of Roosevelt, but turned into a kind of fantastic demagogue, denouncing Roosevelt, denouncing the New Deal, denouncing monetary policy, who'd called the New Deal the Jew Deal, promoting this idea that somehow there was a Jewish conspiracy to take over the government. So there were all kinds of characters out there in the political landscape that really made it quite clear that there was a lot of danger lurking in the in the wings. So it was a very, very unprecedented time in American history. Was Roosevelt ever worried about assassination? No, I don't think he worried about it. There was an attempt, as you know, in Florida shortly before the inauguration. And it's a fascinating story that is often kind of overlooked by the American people. But he was uh, spared in that occasion, partly by the actions of a woman who stood up and essentially knocked the hand of the would-be assassin. And it's it's interesting. It kind of plays into a little bit of Roosevelt's popularity because he becomes seen as a kind of almost like a messiah-type figure that arrives on the scene and somehow saved by the hand of God at this moment of crisis. There were some people who viewed it that way at the time. But no, I don't think he personally was was worried, although there were machine gun nests in Washington on public buildings in 1932 and on the inauguration day. I mean, the government itself was very fearful about political violence, and there had been violence in Chicago. There were hunger marches. There were marches in, in New York City. And again, we, we can't imagine just how bad it was. I mean, mm. 20% of the school children, public school children in New York City were malnourished in 1932. The state of Georgia shut down the entire school system because they could no longer afford to pay their teachers. You know, there was widespread malnutrition, even starvation in places like West Virginia. So, you know, the the country was unrecognizable. Uh, David Wilner, could what we are going through here with this recession, some people think depression, turned into the kind of depression, in your opinion, that happened in the post-29 period, could this have gone the same way? No, I don't think so because of the New Deal. I mean, we have federal deposit insurance, we have unemployment insurance, we have Social Security, we have those basic institutions that were put in place to mitigate, as I said at the outset, the worst excesses of capitalism. We don't have a robber baron society. So so going forward, as we're about to hear the speech, the first inaugural is very famous speech by Franklin Roosevelt. What should we be looking for in the speech? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the moral message, the idea that this is a moral crisis. This is not just an economic crisis. It's a crisis that involves morality and democracy itself. The second thing is action. People wanted action, and Roosevelt wants to stress that there will be action taken. And the third thing is that government will be the instrument of that action. And also a sense of hope that we can get through this, a sense of community. Roosevelt firmly believed in the idea of community. You know, he lived in Hyde Park, New York. He knew who his neighbors were. His neighbors called him by his first name. And he was part of that community. And he saw the United States and indeed in the entire world as a kind of global community. Has too much attention been given to the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? It's interesting that you say that because the, and again, this alludes to what I had said earlier, the line that got the greatest applause in the speech was the line where he said that if Congress doesn't act and if need be, he will take extraordinary powers. Ooh. You know, that was the line that caught the greatest applause. 
and the lines concerning action received a lot of applause. The, the fear itself line kind of elevates historically as the years progress and becomes more and more famous by 35, 36. How would you compare this speech to a great Lincoln speech? Well, I think Roosevelt deserves credit as being, you know, one of the three great presidents. I, I think it's Roosevelt, Lincoln, and Washington that we should consider as one for each of the centuries that the country's been in existence. It's just he is the president who got us through the worst two crises in American history, the Great Depression and the, and the Second World War. Of course, the Lincoln got us through the Civil War, which was the other greatest crisis in American history. So I think he deserves that kind of stature. So Lincoln in the Gettysburg and in the second inaugural and FDR in his first inaugural both offer some hope, as you say, to people. Yeah, there's a moral dimension to those speeches that is so critical, and I think which is why they are so long-lasting. It's much more than a, a political speech. It's a speech about who we are as a people. And do you think historians think that he's made any mistakes in that speech in his inaugural? Well, I mean, you know, Roosevelt... As you can see, I'm a great admirer of FDR, but Roosevelt was a great disappointment overseas, for example. Uh, he wasn't particularly interested in shoring up international trade. He wasn't particularly interested in the London Economic Conference, which Hoover had put together prior to uh, his leaving office, which was a big event. Uh, you know, the first time you had a global economic conference, the first global summit, economic summit. And Roosevelt basically dismisses the entire thing. In fact, is probably responsible for its failure. Because he said we have to put first things first, and, and he was looking towards a domestic recovery to take precedent over an international recovery, and that was the advice he was getting from leading economists within his own administration. There were others, of course, that were much more in favor of international trade, people like Cordell Hull, his secretary of state. But, I mean, he's not universally popular. Certainly among the body politic in the United States, he was very unpopular with his own class and uh, with the wealthy in, in this country. And overseas, there was a certain amount of, shall we say, disappointment as the months wore on that he didn't do more to reach out to the global community. His foreign policy strengths come later. You're listening to The Power of Words, a co-production of WAMC and the Archives Partnership Trust. I'm Alan Shartok, and we're here with Dr. David Woolner, Associate Professor of History at Marist College and Senior Fellow and Resident Historian at the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Institute in Hyde Park, New York. Okay, now that we've set the scene for FDR's inaugural speech, it's time to listen. This is a day of national consecration. And I am certain that on this day, my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, 
nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, a leadership of frankness and of vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. And I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. In such a spirit on my part and on yours, we face our common difficulties. They concern, thank God, only material things. Values have shrunk to fantastic levels. Taxes have risen. Our ability to pay has fallen. Government of all kinds is faced by serious curtailment of income. The means of exchange are frozen in the currents of trade. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no markets for their produce and the savings of many years in thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. And yet our distress comes from no failure of substance. We are stricken by no plague of locusts. Compared with the perils which our forefathers conquered because they believed and were not afraid, we have still much to be thankful for. Nature still offers her bounty, and human efforts have multiplied it. Plenty is at our doorstep, but a generous use of it languishes in the very sight of the supply. Primarily, this is because the rulers of the exchange of mankind's goods have failed through their own stubbornness and their own incompetence, have admitted their failure and have abdicated. Practices of the unscrupulous money changers stand indicted in the court of public opinion, rejected by the hearts and minds of men. True, they have tried, but their efforts have been cast in the pattern of an outworn tradition. Faced by failure of credit, they have proposed only the lending of more money, stripped of the lure of profit by which to induce our people to follow their false leadership, they have resorted to exhortations, pleading tearfully for restored confidence. They only know the rules of a generation of self-seekers. They have no vision, and when there is no vision, the people perish. Yes, the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truth. The measure of that restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values, more noble than mere monetary profit. Happiness lies not in the mere possession of money, it lies in the joy of achievement, 
in the thrill of creative effort, the joy, the moral stimulation of work, no longer must be forgotten in the mad chase of evanescent progress. These dark days, my friends, will be worth all Lake Foster if they teach us that our true destiny is not to be ministered unto, but to minister to ourselves, to our fellow men. <laughs> Recognition of that falsity of material wealth as the standard of success goes hand in hand with the abandonment of the false belief that public office and high political position are to be valued only by the standards of pride of place and personal profit. And there must be an end to a conduct in banking and in business, which too often has given to a sacred trust the likeness of callous and selfish wrongdoing. Small wonder that confidence languishes, for it thrives only on honesty, on honor, on the sacredness of obligations, on faithful protection, and on unselfish performance. Without them, it cannot live. Restoration calls, however, not for changes in ethics alone. This nation is asking for action, and action now. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. This is no unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. It can be accomplished in part by direct recruiting by the government itself, treating the task as we would treat the emergency of a war, but at the same time, through this employment, accomplishing great, greatly needed projects to stimulate and reorganize the use of our great natural resources. Hand in hand with that, we must frankly recognize the overbalance of population in our industrial centers and by engaging on a national scale in a redistribution, endeavor to provide a better use of the land for those best fitted for the land. Yes, the task can be helped by definite efforts to raise the values of agricultural products, and with this the power to purchase the output of our cities. It can be helped by preventing realistically the tragedy of the growing loss through foreclosure of our small homes and our farms. It can be helped by insistence that the federal, the state, and the local governments act forthwith on the demand that their cost be drastically reduced. It can be helped by the unifying of relief activities which today are often scattered uneconomical, unequal. It can be helped by national planning for and supervision of all forms of transportation and of communications and other utilities that have a definitely public character. There are many ways in which it can be helped, but it can never be helped 
by merely talking about it. We must act. We must act quickly. And finally, in our progress towards a resumption of work, we require two safeguards against a return of the evils of the old order. There must be a strict supervision of all banking and credits and investments. There must be an end to speculation with other people's money. And there must be provision for an adequate but sound currency. These, my friends, are the lines of attack. I shall presently urge upon a new Congress in special session detailed measures for their fulfillment. And I shall seek the immediate assistance of the 48 states. Through this program of action, we address ourselves to putting our own national house in order and making income balance outgo. Our international trade relations, though vastly important, are in point of time and necessity, secondary to the establishment of a sound national economy. I favor as a practical policy, the putting of first things first. I shall spare no effort to restore world trade by international economic readjustment, but the emergency at home cannot wait on that accomplishment. The basic thought that guides these specific means of national recovery is not nationally, narrowly nationalistic, it is the insistence as a first consideration upon the interdependence of the various elements in and parts of the United States of America. A recognition of the old and permanently important manifestation of the American spirit of the pioneer. It is the way to recovery. It is the immediate way. It is the strongest assurance that recovery will endure. In the field of world policy, I would dedicate this nation to the policy of the good neighbor. The neighbor who resolutely respects himself and because he does so, respects the rights of others. The neighbor who respects his obligations and respects the sanctity of his agreements in and with a world of neighbors. If I read the temper of our people correctly, we now realize as we have never realized before our interdependence on each other, that we cannot merely take, but we must give as well. But if we are to go forward, we must move as a trained and loyal army willing to sacrifice for the good of a common discipline. Because without such discipline, 
No progress can be made. No leadership becomes effective. We are, I know, ready and willing to submit our lives and our property to such discipline because it makes possible a leadership which aims at the larger good. This I propose to offer, pledging that the larger purposes will bind upon us, bind upon us all as a sacred obligation with a unity of duty hitherto evoked only in times of armed strife. With this pledge taken, I assume unhesitatingly the leadership of this great army of our people dedicated to a disciplined attack upon our common problem. Action in this image, action to this end, is feasible under the form of government which we have inherited from our ancestors. Our Constitution is so simple, so practical, that it is possible always to meet extraordinary needs by changes in emphasis and arrangement without loss of essential form. That is why our constitutional system has proved itself the most superbly enduring political mechanism the modern world has ever seen. It has met every stress of vast expansion of territory, of foreign wars, of bitter internal strife, of world relations. And it is to be hoped that the normal balance of executive and legislative authority may be wholly equal, wholly adequate to meet the unprecedented task before us. But it may be that an unprecedented demand and need for undelayed action may call for temporary departure from that normal balance of public procedure. I am prepared, under my constitutional duty, to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. These measures, or such other measures, as the Congress may build out of its experience and wisdom, I shall seek within my constitutional authority to bring to speedy adoption. But, in the event that the Congress shall fail to take one of these two courses, in the event that the national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me. I shall ask Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. For the trust proposed in me, I will return the courage and the devotion that befit the time. I can do no less. We face the arduous days that lie before us in the warm courage of national unity, with the clear consciousness of seeking old and precious moral values. 
with the clean satisfaction that comes from the stern performance of duty by old and young alike, we aim at the assurance of a rounded, a permanent national life. We do not distrust the, the future of essential democracy. The people of the United States have not failed. In their need, they have registered a mandate that they want direct, vigorous action. They have asked for discipline and direction under leadership. They have made me the present instrument of their wishes. In the spirit of the gift, I take it. In this dedication, in this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessing of God. May he protect each and every one of us. May he guide me in the days to come. That was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's inaugural speech delivered on March 4, 1933. I'm Alan Chartok, and you're listening to The Power of Words. Joining us on the program today is Dr. David Woolner, Associate Professor of History at Marist College and Senior Fellow and Resident Historian at the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Institute at Hyde Park, New York. Dr. Woolner, now that we've heard the speech, let's dig a little deeper. Help us understand what we've just heard. First question, who was listening to the speech? Well, the speech was broadcast across the country on the radio, and hundreds of thousands of people had turned out in Washington also to hear the speech. And really, for the first time, uh, the speech was listened to by people around the world. It was broadcast in various cities in Europe and London and so forth. So it was, it was a national, national audience as well as a global audience. Yeah. And, and one of the interesting consequences of Roosevelt's presidency was this sense, this growing sense that the people had what Bill Moyers called a friend in the White House. He said his dad always felt he had a friend in the White House. It was extraordinary. The response to the speech, almost 500,000 letters arrived in the White House uh, within a few days after the inauguration. Herbert Hoover had one person to answer his mail. The average weekly mail take in the White House in the 20s was about 5,000 letters a week. Roosevelt received 50,000 a week. He increased his staff to handle the mail from one to 50 people. So there was a bond that emerged between Roosevelt and the American people that really starts with this speech and then continues with the fireside chats. The first fireside chat would be delivered just a week or so later on March 12th. So his ability to communicate through the radio was extraordinary and would last throughout the remainder of his presidency. Now, when you listen to him, you hear what we could only call today an older-style orator. It's not the familiar sort of, oh, my fellow Americans, uh, you, I'm going to talk to you now. It was a very polished and rhetorical speech in the old sense. Exactly, and it was designed to do that. I mean, it was designed to deliver a message or a couple of messages. And I think when we look at it, we can see some of what those messages were the moral dimension of the crisis, that we couldn't continue to sustain an economy based on the wrongdoing of the evildoers that he mentions, the money changers in the temple. The sense of community, of national community, the sense that 
one needs to think not just about material things, but needs to think of other types of values. The sense that the United States is a country that is blessed with tremendous bounty, that we need not to forget that, the bounty of nature. So he couches this whole, I think, the whole address in moral terms and really is asking the question, what kind of society do we want to live in? So when he talks about the unscrupulous money changers, I can't help but think in terms of the unscrupulous people who are running hedge, some of the people who are running hedge funds and some of the big corporations in the United States now. Are we talking in a different context than David Wilner? I don't think so. I think greed is greed, and I think he's addressing that fundamental issue. People had taken advantage of the situation that existed in the 1920s, the unregulated financial and banking industries, to make tremendous profits. The PCOR Commission had exposed many of those unscrupulous practices, and the public was outraged, much like the public has been outraged by some of the activities that have gone on in the last few years. Well, were they more outraged than they are now, considering the context? I think what's fascinating right now is where they direct their anger. In Roosevelt's day, the anger is clearly directed at the captains of industry, at the economic royalists that he essentially insisted were at the heart of this problem. And they look to government to do something about it. And he says that he's going to be the instrument of that outrage. So he, in this speech, is essentially placing himself on the side of the people. I think in today's political world, for a host of reasons which have to do with political strategy and other factors, including the makeup of the two political parties, a great deal of the populist anger has been directed towards government itself and not towards Wall Street. I mean, there is anger towards Wall Street and towards the so-called hedge fund managers and so forth, people that Roosevelt would call economic royalists. But there's also anger at the government, and that is the essential difference, I would say. A lot of people say that Franklin Roosevelt had the benefits of a major opportunity. You can't have greatness unless you have an opportunity. You can't have greatness unless you have a civil war, in the Lincoln case. You can't have greatness unless you have this Great Depression. How much of that is mythology? I think there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, a great crisis does provide great opportunity. And I think uh, when you look at what happened to the United States from the early 30s through 1945, the twin crises of the Great Depression and the Second World War, which are just incredibly linked to one another— what you see is the transformation of the role of government in our society and a transformation of people's expectations of their government. No longer is government simply the post office. Government is there to help manage the economy, to provide basic security for the American people, and to make capitalism function in a way that provides the greatest benefit for all, not just for the privileged few at the top. There's a transformation, of course, of America's role in the world as well, which comes through the Second World War. So it's a transformative age. And the other thing that I think we shouldn't forget is just how extraordinary the accomplishments were. I mean, we can criticize aspects of the New Deal. There's no question about it. Some of the programs did not work. Some of them were complete failures. But the basic thrust of the idea that the government had a role to play in managing the economy and in providing that basic security is consistent throughout, and many of the measures that were put in place would last for decades and decades and decades. I mean, the 100 days period, which was a phrase that was coined actually after it was over with, is extraordinary. 16 major pieces of legislation in 100 days. There's just no comparison in any other administration. So this was an opportunity that uh, had to be seized, was seized, and was seized not only by Roosevelt, but by Congress. We need to give the congressional leadership credit. We need to give both Republicans and Democratic leadership within the Congress credit 
they didn't always agree with everything Roosevelt wanted to do, but there was a sense that the country was in an incredible crisis and action was required. And so you get the 16th pieces of legislation, some of which, like the Glass-Steagall Act, would guide American banking financial policy. Until uh, recent times. Until 1999. I mean, it was whittled away at from uh, the 1980s forward. But you have decades and decades of prosperity that is built upon this economic structure. I mean, I, I like to say that Roosevelt built the house that we live in. We've been remodeling the house, but we haven't torn it down yet. The house has undergone some serious damage recently, I would say. But the basic ideas, many of which came right out of that initial months of the New Deal, the idea that you need to regulate the uh, stock market. The Securities and Exchange Commission is established in '34, but there was security legislation that was passed that demanded transparency in the securities industry in the first 100 days. There's the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was established in 1933 in the first 100 days. 20% of all the mortgages, urban mortgages in the United States, were financed by the federal government in the next two years. Over a million homes were refinanced. The the government not only refinanced all of these houses and saved people from foreclosure, it also restructured the way mortgages are handled. I mean, it's out of this that we get the 30-year amortized mortgage that became so popular and raised homeownership in the United States from less than 40% to over 70% in the post-war period. I mean, there is just so much that comes out of this foundation that he builds. So it's deep structural reform that, that we engage in, and it starts immediately. And it's, it, it's, it is rather extraordinary. So in this case, I would say, yes, the crisis creates an opportunity that is definitely seized. At the very end of the speech, he's talking and he says, you've made me the instrument of your wishes. <laughs> and he hints at something darker, I thought. Uh, which is that if you, the Congress, don't do it, instead of for all these things, I'm going to ask you for one thing, and that's to give me extraordinary powers. Now, if you're watching that in a movie, you might get the shutters and wonder whether or not he wasn't hinting at some kind of dictatorship. Absolutely. Well, there were calls for dictatorship. I mean, on Inauguration Day itself, the uh, New York Herald Tribune ran an editorial called For Dictatorship. And it, w- it was ubiquitous. It was, it was all over the press. And again, we had examples overseas, that, which were much more pernicious, of course, emerging at the same time. But there was a sense that the crisis was that great. And my colleagues at the Roosevelt Presidential Library last year did an exhibit on the 100 Days, and they, they did a component on it called The Road Not Taken, which was, was a fascinating look at advice that he had received in those initial months and even days to go ahead and seize extraordinary powers, extra constitutional powers, which he alludes to here in this speech. But ultimately, Roosevelt didn't do that. And he alludes to his own preference in the speech. He talks about our Constitution is so simple and practical that it is possible always to meet extraordinary needs by changes in emphasis and arrangement without loss of essential form. That is why our constitutional system has proved itself the most superbly enduring political mechanism of the modern world. He says near the end of the speech, we do not distrust the future of essential democracy. The people of the United States have not failed. It is about preserving the existence of democracy, as I said. He warns of the need to perhaps take extraordinary measures, partly because he's being pushed in that direction. But ultimately, Roosevelt doesn't take that path. He remains uh, wedded to the Constitution. He works with the Congress. And the two branches of government were extraordinarily successful. And we look at what happens in the New Deal. 
But of course, surrounding him, as we mentioned before, we heard the speech, are a bunch of characters who would have easily become dictators if they had their way. And he had to know that in these remarks. He had to know that. I mean, there's an irony here. The man that he called the second most dangerous man in America, General MacArthur, is leading the inaugural day parade. He was very distrustful of Huey Long. He worked with the Vatican and the Roman Catholic Church to shut down uh, Father Coughlin in in Detroit. took some years to do that. But there were lots of demagogues on both the left and the right. So Roosevelt, you know, is trying to answer the question, how do we save, as I said at the outset, how do we save a liberal capitalist democracy? How do we make this thing work? And, you know, there's so much about this era that has been forgotten. In the mid-30s, he set up a committee called the Committee of Economic Security, led by Francis Perkins. They were the ones who examined the need for Social Security and said, you've got to have Social Security, we've got to have unemployment insurance. They looked at health care. And the conclusion that the committee reached was it's too politically controversial. We can't push that right now. That There's too much pushback from the American Medical Association and other bodies. But they said, ultimately, that has to be a part of this. So, you know, what do we need to make capitalism work? What do we need to save democracy in a world where democracy is under siege? These are the kinds of questions. And, of course, the immediate crisis demands banking and financial reform. We get that through Glass-Steagall. We get that through the Securities and Exchange Commission. We get those immediate needs out of the way. Once he's got that out of the way, you've got to deal with relief, the establishment of the CCC, the establishment of the ultimately Works Progress Administration, and so forth, to provide jobs for millions of Americans. And then, finally, the the deeper structural reforms, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which sets up the Trade Relations Board, the uh, Labor Relations Board, and sanctions the right of workers to form unions in law, Social Security, which provides unemployment and old age security, and the minimum wage provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act. These were profound pieces of legislation that came out of the New Deal and basically changed the structure of the American economic system. David Wilner, when I have interviewed Sam Waterston, I've asked him if he channeled Lincoln. And he said, to a degree, I believe. Do you ever think of channeling Roosevelt? And I ask you this because I want to append this question. If Roosevelt came back today, one way or another, what would he think? Well, I think they were great believers in planning and great believers in government. And I think he had an ability to communicate with the American people. I mean, the American people thought he was one of them. And, you know, he said, government is not an alien force. Government is ourselves. When he talked in the mid-30s of economic royalists who had control of other people's labor, other people's lives, other people's money, he uses that phrase in the speech, other people's money, he said against the organized economic power such as this, the American people could only turn to the organized power of government. So he's saying to the people, we need to restructure our society. I can lead the effort to do that. You've given me that right. Let's do this together. We're one national community. We can do this. And I think today he would have taken a very popular stand against the forces of wealth that are in opposition to these kinds of structural reforms that we, that we need and, frankly, have turned us away from the New Deal provisions since the early 80s. And by the way, that turning away has come from both Democratic and Republican administrations. I want to go, if I can, with you to a completely different place because he talks about the concept of the good neighbor in international relations. And I wonder what the implications of that were. Well, Roosevelt was thinking, I think, primarily of relations with South America, with Latin America, when he refers to the good neighbor policy. He builds on that concept and restructures our relationship with our neighbors to the South in a way that is much more equitable and not heavy-handed, as heavy-handed as had been in American history. So there is a fundamental change there that is immediate. 
But when it came to the transatlantic relationship with London, with the financial centers in Europe, he was much more heavy-handed and played hardball. And How so? In the sense that he, as he alludes to in the speech, he says, we are going to put first things first. We have to have a sound domestic recovery. He's going to do what he has to do to uh, ensure that that recovery is present, inflate prices, whatever it needs to be done, whether it's abandoning the gold standard, et cetera. And the policies that he pursued were seen in places like London as being very detrimental to international trade and to a reconstitution of the global economy. Eventually, Roosevelt comes around to that kind of point of view in the mid-30s. But he says, no, we, we can't pursue that right now. But he does say we're going to be good neighbors to the world. And I think that was a policy that he did pursue throughout his tenure. There are those people who think that FDR was anticipating war all along knew that we were in for it. Is there anything in this speech, David Woolner, that you see that anticipates what he thinks and I think may be coming? Well, it's interesting. Don't forget that the next day, uh, he's inaugurated on March 4th. On March 5th, the elections took place in Germany, which essentially were rigged elections, which endorsed the policies of Adolf Hitler. A few weeks after that, the German Reichstag would pass the Enabling Act, which allowed Hitler to essentially solidify his power and assume dictatorial powers in Germany and set Germany on that very destructive path towards Nazi dictatorship. I think the speech is cautious with respect to its references to foreign relations, to international relations. He's indicating that the country's going to set itself on a new path, the policy of the good neighbor to cooperate with people in the world. But I don't think he's alluding to a potential crisis yet. I think that Roosevelt, probably before anyone in the Western world, recognized the evils of Nazism. He had read Mein Kampf. There's a copy of Mein Kampf in the Roosevelt Library in which he's penned in his own hand on the flyleaf. It's a much more menacing book, and it's original German. So he'd read it in German as well as in English, and Mm. he saw it for what it was, and that's before his assumption of the presidency. And I think he felt he had a particular understanding of Germany based on his childhood experiences there. So I think his antipathy towards Hitler and towards Nazism is very, very early and comes on in 33, 34, certainly. But he was a master of timing. But he was a master of timing. And the, the speech is really pretty much devoid of any reference to the international situation, other than to say the United States has got to take care of itself. We will be a friendly nation, but we've got to put first things first and deal with our own problems. We are out of time. I want to thank our expert, Dr. David Woolner, Associate Professor of History at Marist College and Senior Fellow and Resident Historian at the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Institute in Hyde Park, New York. His newest book is FDR's World War, Peace, and Legacies, co-edited with David Reynolds and Warren Kimball and published by Palgrave. Thanks also to our wonderful producer, David Gustina, and special thanks to Bob Bullock from the Archives Partnership Trust. Be sure to join us next time on The Power of Words.